Hello uh, to our Acres USA Tractor Time podcast listeners. We are producing this from our offices in Austin, Texas. Uh, today's show promises to be a good one. We are going to be joined by Reginaldo Hazlet Maracan, an author and guru on regenerative agriculture, uh, who wrote a book, In the Shadow of Green Man, My Journey from Poverty and Hunger to Food Security and Hope. Uh, it's one of our most popular books that we offer uh, in our bookstore, and for good reason. Um, we call him Rehi. And he's kind enough to let us call him that. He's uh, lived a life worthy of a book. He survived a 34-year civil war in Guatemala, studied agriculture, uh, now lives in Minnesota, and developed strategies for building regenerative food and ag systems. He leads Main Street Project's engineering and design work and is leading explorations around the world in that same field. He spoke uh, last year at our Eco Ag annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, and will be joining us this year for our conference in Columbus, Ohio as well. Uh, we'll get more to that later, but we're overjoyed to have him fo- on the phone with us today. Um, uh, welcome, Ray. Appreciate you being Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, this is really, really great. Um, appreciate the opportunity to do this uh, with you guys. Oh, good. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us about, uh, you know, your experience growing up in Guatemala and what you saw there that started you on the path uh, where you are today? Yeah, it's actually really, I, it's a really interesting story, even for my own kids, which I didn't realize back then, but now has become this um, this story the kids want to hear over and over. And uh, basically, what I have to say is, uh, poverty and hunger to me was kind of a blessing in disguise and I have received a lot of those blessings, disguised blessings in my life, uh, including a house fire in Minnesota that destroyed our home and allowed us to rebuild it on a net zero design and all of that back in 2011. But similar to that, having grown up in Guatemala during the war, you know, the, um, you know, in you know, extreme poverty conditions and, and with a lot of hunger around us, not only our family, but everybody around us, really was a, a way to wake up, not, not necessarily to the realities of the rest of the world, because that came only on shortwave radio to us, and we knew there was a, a war in Nicaragua, too, and another one starting in El Salvador, and, uh, you know, Iran had a war, and we could hear all of that through the voice of Washington, I don't know if you've listened to that, shortwave radio, mm-hmm. but that was our main source of news. And it was like, it was a, a way to understand that, you know, we, we, we are kind of on our own here in this rural community in northern rainforest of Guatemala, and we got to find solutions to these permanent pressing issues. And so regenerative agriculture was really the key for us to, to start moving in, in that direction, even though we didn't call it regenerative agriculture or organic or natural or any of that. Uh, for us, it was simply, can we find a pathway whereby using ancient, native, and innate intelligence, could we figure out how to work with that environment, with that land and the forest and all of that, to not only feed ourselves and secure our food, but also produce enough surplus so that we could start getting out of the some of the more critical material poverty issues. And I'm not even talking about homes or things like that or buying mm-hmm. land. I'm talking about buying shoes and buying clothing, you know, that kind of basic material issue. But another two big elements to consider in, in that kind of, you know, uh, living conditions is 
is that we were in our own minds and in our own understanding, we didn't think of ourselves as poor or food insecure. Mm -hmm. We just thought of ourselves as a community facing challenges that we needed to resolve. And so we never thought of somebody having to come and fix this for us. And that, I think, was the secret to our success in re-engaging the natural forces and then our own creativity to, to resolve a lot of those issues. And two critical elements of that mentality is, you know, when you don't see yourself as poor, is that despite us being labeled, you know, poor and hungry, um, we never really internalized that. We always considered ourselves pretty happy families. And if you really look at the reason that was possible, it was a, a way of self-determination and self-defining who we were instead of allowing the statistics, you know, and the, the outside definitions uh, define who we were. And so in that context, spirituality and um, our core understanding of, of nature and all of that from the basis of your spiritual wealth was critical to deal with the material aspect of our, our conditions. And I believe that that's the real beginning of a way of thinking that has allowed me to grow up and to move into my adult life and um, without losing track of what's important in life and how we are supposed to build the permanent solutions to these perennial issues of poverty, hunger, the food insecurity that we see all over the world and all of that. And so it's at this point in my life, it's, it's been really good to review all of those stories. And it's part of the reason I wrote the book is because mm-hmm. I wanted those stories to be out there because too often we separate, you know, the, the, the mm-hmm. health of our bodies from the, where the food comes from. And too often we separate the challenges of the world from our responsibility in creating the, the structures that actually generate those problems in the first place. And then we want to patch them with donations and, and, and paternalistic approaches. And that is the way to perpetuate those same conditions that we claim we want to solve. And these are really important elements of, of living in this day and age that we have to come to, grab, you know, to, to grips with and to go back into some of that same ancient and same traditional and innate intelligence that that got us out of that and that can get us out of a lot of these other entrenchments we are in this modern life. That, uh, um, that's fascinating. Yeah, that um, it, you touched on this a little bit already, but the the Civil War element was a thread throughout your book. Um, you talked about getting through checkpoints at gunpoint and and neighbors who shoot first and ask questions later and. Um, Minnesota seems like a long ways away from those stories, but, uh, you know, how often do you think, go back and think about those and, and, and how do you use those experiences uh, in your life today? It's, um, there was a, I have a story of this friend, he's, he's from the U.S. and we crossed the border into Mexico once and, um, coming back, we were stopped at a checkpoint and they wanted to know whether we were you know, supporting the mm-hmm. rebels or something like that. And mm-hmm. anyway, when we were going through, he was in front of me because he, he was accompanying me as part of a sort of a, it, it was an accompaniment project 
to keep people, local folks, from getting shot um, with impunity so that you know, foreigners were not almost ever, you know, rarely was a foreigner uh, hurt because the Guatemalan, the Guatemalan system didn't want to get in trouble with, with foreign governments. But Guatemalans, they didn't care. And so part of that strategy was to have foreigners uh, accompany Guatemalans, and I had this fellow. So we were going through this checkpoint, and he's in front of me because he's trying to protect me. And one of the things that happens is that he takes a, an American attitude towards trying to get us through the checkpoint. And obviously, it isn't working. You know, the, 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 the military is not going to hurt him, but they're going to make his life miserable if they can. Meanwhile, they were going to be way more upset by the time I made it through. And so I asked him to, you know, stop, step aside. And I said, well, Joel, you know, come over here. And I went through and, you know, I bowed my head and I looked down to the ground and I, you know, I paid all of my respect to the officer so that he would see that I was no threat to anybody and so on. And so anyway, he waved me right through and then turns over to Joel and says, you see, that's how you do that. <laughs> and so life was like that. And those lessons, believe me, Minnesota, it's very far away, but it's got a lot of those same people here. Not, they don't look the same, but they behave exactly the same way. When I tried to get into farming here, I encountered a lot of those challenges all over again. And I tried that strategy and just tried to be, you know, quiet and look down to the ground, all of that. But at least I was hoping they would just let me do my farming here in rural Minnesota. Didn't work. Didn't work. Wow. So when I moved to Northville, and all of this is, is you know, it's explained in more detail in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came to Northfield ready to defend my ground. I came ready to, to you know, not look down anymore, just to right. keep moving forward. And if my promise to my friends and everybody was that, you know, if I'm not going to be able to farm because there are people who just doesn't want to see minorities as neighbors, they want to see them as cheap laborers. Yes, nobody had a problem for a whole year as long as they thought I was a cheap laborer coming from you know, Latin America to help them be more profitable on their farms. That was fine. But they saw that I could, I was going to be a farmer myself. That's when everything changed. And that's when the hostilities started. So coming to Northfield, I said, not anymore. But I, I had lost the ability to access land. And so I, and I was going to that point where, you know, if you don't access land at a certain age in this country, you don't have enough seasons left to farm. And so I thought, well, if I'm not going to be able to do that, or if, if it doesn't look as promising, how about just growing farmers instead? And so I, I set up the program that I work with at Main Street Project now, and all of that, and we are winning big time, and it's also partially explained in the book. But to your question about, you know, Minnesota is far away and all of that, yes, but you know what? Human nature, the mm-hmm. the, the, the nature this nature that calls us to be greedy and to oppress others as a way to get ourselves farther ahead, it's universal. There is no way yeah. to escape that. It's just different versions of it. And, yeah, people may not, you know, just shoot first and ask questions around here unless, of course, you enter the territory of some of those individuals. And Minnesota has been, you know, grappling with this whole idea of, you know, stand your ground law 
which means sure. pretty much that if somebody walks into your space, you have the right to, to defend yourself, and shooting them is actually not out of the question. And it came out of somebody who shot someone who entered their apartment, who was probably justified because they were fearing for their lives. But to make that into a blanket, you know, anybody can do that. It's very dangerous, and it isn't that far from what Guatemala did. So we have to be careful because a lot of folks here are so far removed from those realities that they don't understand how you get there in the first place. It's a slippery slope once you go in that direction. That's 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 interesting and 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 certainly eye-opening uh, as well. Um, not too many people in our country have that perspective of of seeing where that slippery slope leads, uh, like you do, as well. Um, education is another thread in your book. Um, you wrote that your father was was illiterate, but a very kind and very wise man. And uh, you took that a step further and, and really worked uh, hard to get an education. Uh, was there anything that you learned from your father that you uh, you never learned in school? And, and kind of what, what drove you to get that education? Right. So in schools, you learn a lot of facts, a lot of figures, formulas for calculating the whatever, you know, whether it's where is the formula for a soil that is deficient on some nutrient or formula for calculating the decrease in pressure because of friction in a pipe. You see, all of those things are really important. Knowledge is absolutely critical. Mm -hmm. But don't forget that it is a lot of people with really amazing amounts of knowledge in their heads and capabilities, technical capabilities, with PhDs and masters and this and that. Those are actually most of the people who are responsible for how the earth and our ecosystems are getting wrecked. Mm -hmm. And so the one thing that I was taught back at home by my father and our neighbors and the elders in my community was that knowledge without wisdom is actually a more dangerous weapon than some of the most amazing weapons we have today that we use in war. Why? Because they are silent killers, and nobody sees them coming, such as, you know, the, 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 the destruction of the, the, the land and the ecology and the species on Earth and all of that. That's a silent killer. And, uh, and, and you know, even though we want to make it loud and town it out there and all of that, you can see how easily it is undone uh, if you know if, if we don't use that knowledge um, in combination with some really uh, well-established and wise approaches to what matters and what doesn't. And so, I believe that I could just be one of more of those people out there who who are destroying our planet if I had not had the upbringing that I did. Now, it doesn't mean that that's the only way to get wisdom incorporated into your life, but I was lucky that I didn't even have to think about it. Um, and um, right. if, if other folks out there listening um, have degrees in agriculture, chemistry, biochemistry, or physics, or whatever, you know, I would encourage them to go back and gain wisdom because it doesn't come from the universities. All the degrees in the world will make won't make you um, a worthy. You know, don't turn your life won't turn your life into one that is worth and honorable if wisdom is not part of that knowledge base. So I believe that 
this is this is the critical lesson that a lot of the younger people uh, need to grow up with. Uh, we are doing our mm-hmm. part in building an environment where younger folks uh, pursue science and technology with a with a real grounded understanding of how the Earth systems work and how we are so dependent on the Earth being healthy for us to be healthy. Um, that's wisdom right there, which is not necessarily part of most. Um, most of the business equations out in the larger scale of things or in the political uh, landscape, especially this day and age, we are seeing very unwise people with a lot of money, power, and knowledge mm-hmm. you know, continuing to wreck our our communities in ways that that's, that's for the dark ages. That's for the times when we didn't know better. Not today. Right. It shouldn't be like that. Right. Right. Uh, re- related to that, you told a story that stuck with me in your book about uh, a time when your dad was using uh, chemicals to kill chicken weed, and you you watched him and kind of wondered how it worked and was a little skeptical. And uh, in the middle of that scene as you were writing, um, you suddenly have to defend your dad from a deadly snake. And it struck me as a as a good paradox of nature that we try to control it, and it constantly reminds us that it is in charge. Uh, is, is that a fair analysis of what you were trying to, to write into that? <clears throat> well, maybe the another way to look at it would be mm-hmm. um, to really understand how vulnerable we are mm-hmm. and how in a blink of an eye, you can be gone. And the only yeah. thing that will matter is what did you do before you were gone? Mm-hmm. So thinking about that is critical. I wanted to get people to think, you know, about all of that life we were living, how we thought about it. And the fact that whether it was my dad getting bit by that snake or whether somebody gets hit by a truck or you get a heart attack, what matters is how. what did you do in the time that you were allowed to be around here? And what was it worth to other people? Because at the end of the day, your happiness isn't defined by, by accumulating a wealth or any of that. Happiness only comes as a result of what you do unto others. That fact cannot be denied. It doesn't matter what else mm-hmm. you deny in life. Um, that's why there is so much unhappiness, depression, and all of that is because we have forgotten the foundation of happiness is not in money, in power. And so we think so, and it seems to provide that immediate reward and so on, and maybe it does in that sense, but not. Um, but it doesn't create the conditions for sustaining that. And so Knowing that we could be gone any minute, it's critical in understanding how are we living our lives and what are we contributing, not what we are taking, but what we're contributing and how are we, you know, living with others and where is our humanity, which is the foundation of, you know, um, understanding our purpose in life. And then once you understand that and you live your life for that purpose, then you have a happy life. And it doesn't matter if you live in material poverty or 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 not, because spiritually you are so wealthy that you will find a way to be happy with what you have. And, yeah, there's a point here where we pursue more material possessions. I have done that. But consciously knowing that you do have to put limits to that and practicing that discipline every day. Mm. That's the true foundation of spirituality. And without that, you know, we don't get to understand that a snake bite or a truck or something hitting you whatever takes you out and it won't matter anymore 
it, it would only matter what you did before that point. That's uh, eloquently put, yeah. That, uh, to our listeners, uh, this is Tractor Time uh, podcast with Acres USA. We're listening to Reginaldo Hazlemarkin, uh, an author and guru on regenerative agriculture, talking about his life and his book, In the Shadow of Green Man. Um, there's an element of poetry in your writing, uh, and, and your book includes you know, dozens of tales about the green man. Um, can you talk about how he, he kind of cr- got created in your life and, and who is the green man and how much of you is involved in, in the character of the green man in the book? Well, think of it as, a, as an alter ego sort of. Um, mm-hmm. in the, um, during the war, there were a lot of things that you couldn't talk about, a lot of places you couldn't go to. And a lot of things you had to do just to get by, whether it was a checkpoint or, um, you know, asking the military to do something in your community so that they would not think of you as your community as an enemy and then start, you know, poking at your neighbors. Um, And so most of it, though, I mean, remember, I was about six years old when the real problems began, you know, when the violence was a lot more visible. And, and and so on. And it was hard to explain it to yourself. Um, so what's going on? This that's a question that happens to a, you know, comes to the mind of a child who's being abused, whether it's the parents abusing or whether it's the community or whether it's the the government through the army. Mm-hmm. That the abuse is the same. It creates the same mental conundrum, especially at that age when you are still you yet with the fundamental neurological trunks that develop as, as you become seven and eight and nine years old. So the only way to answer those questions wasn't to, to ask the adults. I mean, the only way to answer was to go back to something internal, because outward asking it, um, asking the adults to answer the questions, why are the, mm-hmm. why are the neighbors being taken away and, and, you know, Cayetano and our phones were coming back in body bags just a few months later, and we went to their funerals. And I was standing back there, and sometimes, you know, the the the, uh, the parents would put a, a little stool next to the gasket so that when they could show their face, they would open up that little window in the gasket so that mm-hmm. that you could see and I remember climbing up and looking at their faces at Alfonso at least I could see his face and and I never forgot that that very evening, you know. And you go back home and you can't ask anything because nobody wants to talk about anything because somebody may be listening and then some they may say something that upset somebody who had a bone against them and to pick with them and then they they're gonna call the army. Everybody was afraid of everything and everyone. So the only option really you have as a kid is to find a a way to get those answers in a different way. And to to me, the the creation in my head of Green Man was critical because, yes, it was me in the the head, but it was sufficiently removed imaginarily that I could ask those questions and then listen for the answers, even though they were my own answers. But those answers were also created in the, as a process of taking all the information I heard, whether it was on the radio, adults, you know, uh, uh, speeches, you know, the mayor's speeches, the army speeches, all of those things, the school teaching, you know, the the the, the, the kids talking and all that, just went into a place 
I called Green Man, and then Green Man came out of this tales about a duende. A duende, it's, it's also called a sombrerón. It's, it's this creature that is it's not really that big. It's about four feet high or some, so they say. Mm-hmm. And it's a traditional a tale in, in, in Guatemala. And I always imagine a duende being green. And so to me, yeah. the, the, the green man is, is that duende that everybody talked about, that you could ask anything because the duende was pretty pretty fascinating creature, knew so much stuff in my head. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's where it comes from. But it was really a way to cope with a really overwhelming system that I couldn't understand. Nobody wanted to explain, and most people didn't actually understand everything was going on because the information was really important for the army, so they manipulated it. And for the most part, they never told the truth anyway. And I knew that instinctively, and so I couldn't believe that, but who could explain it otherwise? So that's the way it went. And then eventually, you know, we were, I mean, not eventually, but throughout that, we could ask my dad sometimes in the in the forest where we were alone and all of that, and and he would be very careful to talk about things but and tell us stories of when when the when the Castillo Armas uh, came back from Honduras and invaded Guatemala and the post, you know, supported by the United States and the United Food Company, they 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 deposed our democratically elected president and mm-hmm. the planes flying overhead where they grew up because that was in the pathway from Honduras and he would tell us those stories and then what happened afterwards and so on. But um, in the forest, and we were forbidden from ever saying anything about it. This was later on, like by the time I was 10 years old and so on. So Greenman, all the way across that, was the the repository of all of that information and the interpreter. It is it is something we all have. It's called innate intelligence. We have the ability to process stuff we don't even know. Um, that's that's uh, that's quite that's an amazing image, and I'm struck by the. The, the safety in nature that you, you found versus uh, to be able to share those stories and communicate um, versus doing it in a in a neighborhood or in a in a community square or anything like that. Um, you conclude the book with you know kind of telling a story and really kind of um, with a lesson that there's really only without giving it, it away that there's really only one direction humanity can go, and that's the direction of sustainability. Uh, and that kind of our, our survival depends on it. Um, you know, to transition to kind of what you're doing today with the Main Street Project, how does that, re- you know, resolution uh, relate to your work today? And, 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 and how did you get to that point? Well, number one, we have to understand how nature really works and then, and then move away from always trying to manipulate it for profit and ownership and control. Um, that to me was critical. Even if we end up doing some of it anyway, you have to remove your mindset from that to be able to to actually get to to this place where we where we started from. And so what we did was um, just step back from from what we are doing today in the industrial agriculture system and sustainable agriculture and organic agriculture and all of those things that we see going on, but yet still have to create um, an, uh, a fundamentally natural management system that would allow us to continue to regenerate at a scale that can sustain us over the long run. I mean, that's the only path we actually have. We didn't figure out how to do that 
or are we going to continue to dwindle like we are right now with diseases rampant going around, food-related diseases that are now um, bigger killers than cancer? And and I can remember what other kinds of you know not traditionally common ways that people die, you know, becoming now obsolete sure. in relationship to food-caused diseases. So what we did was we go back and start to reimagine what would a farm look like if we were to actually use natural sciences uh, in the, well, natural sciences in the context of how nature, nature itself works, not how we would like to manipulate it for our own personal benefit or corporate benefit. And what happens is the miracle of nature expresses itself only when you do that. Miracle of nature doesn't express itself if you start manipulating it. So whenever you manipulate nature, you are going to go against its, its, its own pathways. When you start getting in the way of nature, you're going to end up fighting something, whether it's weeds, right. pests, uh, poor soil nutrition, um, deterioration of the soil, degeneration of the ecosystem overall that happens when you start interfering with this natural cycle. And so we designed a, a system that we needed to, one, base it on livestock because Livestock yeah. is fundamental to ecological regeneration, uh, whether it's wildlife or whether it's um, um, domesticated uh, livestock, it doesn't matter. It's, you still need the intestinal tract and the, in the interference and disruption of animals to be able to restore and regenerate an ecology. But how do you do that in the context of trying to create something large-scale? You have to take a livestock that can have a large scale, not only economic impact in the marketplace, but also can engage the ecologies at a uh, at a new landscape-based level. And also, more important than those two, is engage people in large scale. And the, and the problem is with the big farms, you need very few individuals to actually run uh, a farm, so the, the people movement doesn't get built just because you are a large, successful, potentially even regenerative farm. It doesn't create the change we need because it's people that make the change. And this is where poultry came, became critical because if you look at all the livestock options, most of them really have very defined ecologies. And so you shouldn't, if you're going to work with, in, in regenerative agriculture, you shouldn't put cattle where, where it doesn't belong naturally. And that's right. where we mostly put it right now. Pigs and goats and other things are the right. same way, except poultry, which is pretty universal. And not only that, but if you look at people engagement, uh, most of the food in the world, according to the UN, 70% of the food in the world is produced by farmers with less than five hectares. And the only common livestock denominator that you can find in there that can be adapted to any of those ecologies or social or economic conditions is the poultry. So this is where our poultry-centered regenerative agriculture design came from. You know, number one, by going back and thinking about how we could put poultry into a natural, a naturally defined energy cycle, but then also ensuring that whatever we picked had the potential larger economic and social impact so we can build a movement behind it. Movements don't get built because we say so. Movements are built because people engage, because it makes their lives better and their local conditions better, and they can see themselves as part of it. And that that's how we came to where we are now. So at this point, we, you know, the process is pretty straightforward. We produce 
prototype units, just the same as in any engineering process. You, you build prototypes to test your theories and all of that. We went through that, finished that. After the prototype units, we started building the, um, the prototype production units. We started building the, the prototype farm units. So we have two of them on their way right now. And then after the, the prototype farm units, which is a number of production units each, we will be deploying the regional uh, system, which is a network of farm production units uh, or farm units that make a, uh, you know, produce the economies of scale necessary to to make the mechanizational or the mecha- mechanical aspects of the system more efficient. Nature is is efficient by itself. You don't have to you don't have to if you don't manipulate it, then it, it's very efficient. When you start plowing and monoculturing and all of that, that's when we end up in it with inefficient systems, although they are very mechanically very efficient for an individual to go and, and wreck hundreds of acres or thousands of them, um, energy-wise and, and in terms of regenerate, regenerative capacity and food productivity and wealth creation and all of that, it becomes very inefficient. It's a waste of the resource. So if we go the other way and then first make the place um, um, regenerative, then the mechanization aspect or the areas that need to be mechanized can be diminished, and then you can bring back the technology that we have to use in those areas, but leave nature to do its job in the best way it can. That's what we have done with the poultry. In a a nutshell, uh, we redesigned the way you free-range poultry by creating units that are fixed with paddocks. Those paddocks are managed, rotated, so that the chickens can go back and forth, you can increase the amount of poultry you can put in an, in an acre significantly and it still, um, you know, have uh, the science to create the, or to generate the, the, um, the factors, you know, evaluate the regenerative factors that are necessary to, to, to monitor so that you know that your space is processing energy in a way that is efficient in the context of producing whether it's eggs or meat. And then to that, those units, we added the perennial crops, which are bushes and and um, and trees uh, that are also producers of food, whether it's fruits or nuts and so on. And the, the, the basic um, premise behind that infrastructure is the fact that chickens are are jungle animals. They are not they are, they are not pasture animals. And so as jungle animals, we recreated that environment for them so that we can have top-quality poultry, healthy and all of that, uh, but also diminish losses from predators and things like that, and at the same time, um, make the space way more productive by multiplying the amount of crops and outputs, which is simply the amount of energy that you're getting out of the system, which can be used as food, which was, you know, just sitting there as inert chemical energy that a lot of times ends up in the soil, in the water, or evaporating. In, um, in in natural systems, that's um, that's energy that has to find a space to go to, and nature would put in, um, you know, if if we don't if we interfere with natural cycles, it will end up as a toxic in a toxic form, whether as nitrates or as um, pollution in the air. Uh, none of that is necessary if you actually allow natu- natural cycles to continue as you deploy systems like this, and that's what we have done. Um, we are deploying regionally now, and um, we have launched finance, a financial initiative with Iroquois Valley Farms, so that farmers have 
the tools and resources necessary to move into this kind of work. That's, well, con congratulations on the work you've been doing. Uh, it truly is important. Um, it's not 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 everybody can say that the work they're doing out there is uh, is is saving the world, uh, even a, a little bit at a time. Um, the, you teach quite a bit, and for those who are listening who want to learn more from uh, uh, Ray, uh, you can attend our Eco Ag Conference and Trade Show in Columbus on December fifth through eighth. Uh, you're going to be presenting an all-day workshop on on large-scale integrated pasture poultry uh, at our EcoAg University classes. Um, kind of, what's your approach to teaching, and are you finding farmers uh, are receptive to the message when they're hearing you the first time? Yeah, farmers are are the the easiest audience to talk to. Um, so far, it, it, we have had incredible success, especially in Mexico and Guatemala and Colombia and most recently in Haiti, uh, and with the Latino and immigrant farmers community in the United States, this is this really uh, easy to communicate. Farmers who are more entrenched and they are more um, monoculture-driven are a little bit harder to talk to, but but doesn't make it impossible either. Once they, they need more explanation, they ask a lot more questions because a lot of this innate knowledge is lost in this country, so we don't see things this way anymore. And so, I, but as long as I'm patient and willing to get back to the basics for a while and bring folks up to a level where they can actually see the same thing we see, then it becomes easier to move forward because what we're doing makes sense. Simply makes sense. It, if you are doing monocultures, you will find yourself working way too much for what you you get out of it. And if you are doing chickens in a in a in a chicken tractor dragging them around or anything like that, you're working too much. There is no need for that. And if you're putting chickens on pasture, which by the way, we are, I'm not going to be talking about pasture chicken. This is called regenerative poultry. And the okay. reason is regenerative is because we are working backwards to the original habitat of chickens. Not and those are not pastures. And so when you go that way, you also diminish the amount of work you do in relationship to the output you get out of your farm. And what's the foundation of economic success? It's exactly that. Reduce your inputs, reduce your costs, and maximize or optimize your outputs without wrecking the natural cycles. That's what we teach. And when we get to that point, it gets easier. Um, most, most farmers get to that point where they actually see how fighting nature is never going to work for anybody. Right. Right, makes sense. Um, if, if for those, I guess, can you tell those who are listening how they can get involved with the Main Street Project if they're listening and they're nodding their head and they're saying, "Wow, I want to learn more." Uh, what, how do they get in touch with you, and how do they learn more about the Main Street Project? Well, number one, we're going to put all the links in the podcast so that people can just click on them. But if if you are itching and you're a computer, you know, go to mainstreetproject.org. It's one word, mainstreetproject.org. And just browse through our current videos and materials. You'll get a really, really in-depth um, sense of what we do. Most of the engineering production manuals, standards, and all of that, that is, 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 the, is the nuts and bolts of what we do, isn't on our website. That's, that on, we only disclose that uh, directly to groups and to institutions that actually are going to replicate the system. Um, fundamentally, because we don't want the system getting 
you know, shortcut it or anything like that. Uh, this is not something you can just go and do. You need to be trained. This is a very professionally designed and engineered system. So aside from, from those details, everything else uh, to get in touch with us and so on, you can find it at, at our website. And um, also ways to participate if you are someone out there who likes this whole thing and want to invest in it. Uh, we now have the Soil Restoration Note, which is a partnership with the Iroquois Valley Farms. And that's our main tool for financing our regional um, system deployment and land access and so on. So that's all on the website. And um, if somebody has more specific questions, you can always email, um, you know, click on the email, and one of us will get back to them. Great. Well, um Thank you again for joining us uh, this week. Uh, you've been listening to Tractor Time, a podcast by Acres USA. Uh, we were so happy and lucky to have uh, Reginaldo has led Madrigan on our cat on our uh, podcast today. Uh, I hope you can tell how passionate he is for sustainable agriculture, for thoughtful living. Uh, you're an inspiration to us, and uh, we hope uh, uh, this inspiration can spread uh, to others through this podcast, through your teaching, through the book. Um, like uh, Rehi said, all the links to Main Street Project will be on ecofarmingdaily.com, uh, where you can find this podcast and more articles. Uh, Rehi, again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, thank you for listening. Drop us a note at podcast at acresusa.com if you have any questions or feedback on the program. And uh, please join us next week when we uh, dig into the Acres Archives for historic speech by Charles Walters, the founder of Acres USA. Uh, thanks again to Rehi, and everybody have a great week ahead.